If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open that to uh, Luke chapter 22. Uh, in the Black Pew Bibles, uh, we're going to be on page 882. Uh, so there might be a Bible under the chair in front of you. You can grab that, 882. So we are continuing this story uh, of Jesus, following him between the Last Supper and his crucifixion. Now, Jesus came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He spent the last week or so teaching publicly in the temple. And he's speaking as a prophet when he does that. And he told the people and told the rulers that judgment was coming on the nation and on its leaders because of their sin. They had betrayed the trust of God. Israel and its leaders had been entrusted with the things of God and to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, of the Savior that they were looking for. And Jesus, that Messiah, was here. And the religious leaders weren't interested in him or what it was that he had come to do. They were only interested in preserving their powerful, comfortable, prideful lives. And so they were searching for a way to try and silence Jesus, basically to try and shut him up. Because they recognized that if he kept doing and saying the things that he had been doing and saying, it was going to mean the end of everything. But they couldn't just have him arrested in public because that would have started a riot. The people looked to him as a prophet. And so they sought a way to try and do away with him privately, quietly, on the sly. And Judas, one of Jesus' 12 closest followers had agreed to betray Jesus to them for money, specifically the price of a slave. That was the price of a life. And Jesus isn't unaware of what's going on. He knows what the leaders are doing. He knows how they're scheming. He knows what Judas has agreed to do. He knows that what is coming is going to be his torture and execution. But he has known this not just for the last few days, but he has known this from before the foundations of the world. He has known that he would die to redeem his people from sin and from death. That is his purpose. But even knowing that, it is still not easy. He prayed when he was in the garden. We read last week, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus has been preparing his disciples for this moment, urging them to prayer, cautioning them not to give in to temptation. And that's where we pick up the story this week. So this is Luke chapter 22, uh, starting in verse 47. So while Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, that's twelve disciples, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So that was the sign. Judas would kiss him as an indication to the crowd, to the soldiers, to the people who had come to arrest him that this was the man. Now this, we do kissing a little differently culturally here. This is a pretty normal greeting, right? This is a handshake. This is a hug. Right? The guy that I go up and give a big hug to, he's the one. It was a sign of affection, of friendship. And so in this moment here, Judas is pretending to show love for, to show affection for Jesus, 
But in his pretend love, he's actually betraying him. Because we know from the other accounts that Judas really loved, Judas really trusted, Judas really worshipped money. And he was willing to sacrifice Jesus, his friend, his rabbi, his teacher, on the altar of money. That's essentially what, what Judas was doing here, right? He was killing Jesus to get more money. And in this moment, he is doing something. With that kiss, he is doing something that indicates trust and friendship and love. But in that action, he is literally condemning Jesus to death. He is doing the opposite of what that kiss is supposed to represent. And Jesus says, in essence, what gives? Judas, what are you doing? Are you going to pretend that you love me? And in the same moment, betray me? That's a rhetorical question. Right? Obviously, the answer is yes. That is what Judas has already done. That's what he is doing right now. But Ju Jesus isn't asking this because he's confused by Judas's actions. He knew exactly what was going to happen. But he is highlighting and in this moment making perfectly clear to Judas, I think especially, just exactly what he is doing. Judas has spoken of his love for Christ. He has proclaimed Christ. But in this moment, Judas is killing Jesus for money. Carries on in verse 49. And when those who were around him, that is the other disciples, saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. So um, if you remember last week, Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, you should sell your cloak and buy one. And the disciples said, look, Lord, we, we have two swords. And now they're thinking, now's the time to use them, right? This is what he was talking about. We're ready. We're ready. We got two swords. And, and we know, again, from, from other accounts that it's Peter. Of course, it's Peter who grabs the sword and starts swinging it. He thinks, great, this is it. He just got done saying that he'd do anything for Jesus. He was ready to die for Jesus. He was ready to go to prison for Jesus. And now this is his chance to prove it. And Peter, this fisherman, is single-handedly going to fight off this crowd of professional soldiers and protect Jesus. So he makes this foolish attempt and cuts off this guy's ear. And part of the, part of the, like there's a comedic aspect to this. There's also a, a, there's also a tragic aspect to it too. Because this is a servant of the high priest. This is not the guy who orchestrated all of this. This is not the guy who made all of this happen. This is some guy that got woken up in the middle of the night and told to grab his sword and a torch and just come along. He, he may not have any idea what's going on here. But yet he's the one that Peter harms. He's the one that Peter reaches out and injures. Not the people who were responsible, but somebody who was just following orders. But in doing so, Peter is also at risk of his own legal trouble now. 
Because an assault on the servant is treated the same as, a, as an assault on the master. So Peter has just taken up arms against the high priest of all Israel. That's death. And so Peter now stands at risk of dying for Jesus, just the way that he said he would. But Jesus does something unexpected here. Verse 51, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So Jesus says, essentially, everybody stop it. Everybody stop what you are doing. Now, Peter had his idea of how this would play out. He's going to save the day. He's going to lay down his life so that Jesus could make good his escape. And for years to come, everybody will sing Peter's praises. That's Peter's idea of how this is all supposed to play out. That's Peter's idea of how this is supposed to work. But that's not Jesus' idea. That's not Jesus' plan. Peter has his idea, but Jesus has his. Peter's zeal is, ad, is in some way admirable and understandable. But even so, Peter is working against Jesus' plan. Peter is working against what Jesus is actually doing. He's in his head. He has confused God's plan with his plan. And he... He is, in this moment, trying to put a stop to what Jesus has come to do. And so Jesus says, stop it. Just stop. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now remember what Jesus said when he was praying. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus asks the Father, the Son asks the Father to take this burden from him, this cup of his suffering, this cup of the wrath of God poured out on all unrighteousness. That was the cup that the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 75, when he said that in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. <coughs> and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So that is the cup that Jesus is preparing himself to drink. Not because he is wicked, but because he is drinking that, that cup in the place of sinners like you and like me to save us from the death that will inevitably occur if we were to drink of it. That is his father's plan. That is his plan. And he is fully submitted to that plan regardless of the cost. And now these men have come to arrest him in the middle of the night, in the darkness, and he lays an accusation against them, essentially saying that they're cowards. You've got this great big armed crowd to arrest one unarmed man. And if he were so dangerous, if he, if he posed such a danger to the nation, why didn't they arrest him for any time in the whole week previous? He was right there in the temple the whole time, and nobody, nobody did anything then. 
But instead they came here in the middle of the night in secrecy to arrest him. And they did that because to arrest him publicly would have been bad, bad publicity. They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of what the people would do if they tried to arrest Jesus publicly. They did this out in the open, so they had to do it quietly. They had to hide what they were doing. And so Jesus here is exposing their bad motives. But even so, even so, he still submits to it. He says, this is your hour. In this moment, right here, right now, Jesus has all of the power and all of the authority to end this. He has all of the power and all of the authority to bring down judgment and fire upon the earth. He has the authority to call 12 legions of angels to his rescue. And he would be right and he would be just to do so. But there is a greater plan and a greater motivation at play here. And that motivation is love. Earlier that evening, according to John's gospel, he said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus loves his people. And he desires to save them from their slavery to sin and from death itself. And the only way that they can be saved is if he dies for them. If he dies in their place. And so he is submitting to the power of darkness. He is submitting in this hour, even to death itself, willingly. Now there's a, an important implication here in what Jesus is saying that is important for us to remember. God is absolutely and completely sovereign over all things. He is the one who is in charge of absolutely everything. So you go back to the story of Job in the Old Testament, and how does that story begin? Right? Satan comes before God and has to receive permission from God before he can afflict Job. Before a single bad thing happens to Job, Satan has to go before God and receive permission to make that happen. We, we have this way of thinking about the relationship between God and the devil or, or good and evil as being this, this cosmic struggle and, you know, who's going to win? Who's going to come out on top? But that's not the way that the Bible talks about this. They are not equally matched in this struggle, but the Lord God stands supreme over all things. He dwells in unapproachable light, in uncontested and power rule and rule over all things. And so this moment where it looks like the, force of dark, the forces of darkness will triumph, in this hour, this evil is only working in ways that are permitted by God. Satan has to ask for and receive permission from God to do what is transpiring here. So Jesus says, this is your hour. 
This is the power of darkness. This is the time that has been appointed for darkness to do what it has wanted to do from the very beginning, to try to overcome, to try and extinguish the light of the world. Because this was the plan that was laid down for Jesus to willingly lay down his life for your life. He submitted himself to be trampled by the power of the enemy, to be tortured by evil, to be beaten by the blasphemers, to be crucified by the pagans, so that your sins and so that my sins could be forgiven and so that we could be welcomed and embraced as sons and daughters of God our Father. And so Jesus willingly submits himself to the power of darkness in this moment. And he knows that he goes to the cross. He knows that he goes to his death. He goes to drain to the dregs the cup of God's wrath poured out on all unrighteousness. And he is doing that. He is submitting himself to the power of darkness because he loves you. And he would rather take that pain and that suffering on himself than for you to have to take it. Because it would destroy you. Utterly and completely destroy you. To drain the cup of wrath that you have mixed in your sin. You were dead in your sins, it says in Ephesians. But Christ died so that you could live. But the glorious conclusion and what we are walking towards in Easter is that Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. But the love of the Father acting in the power of the Spirit raised the Son of God on the third day. The wrath of God was satisfied. The demands of justice were met. And we can be free from the judgment that we are due in our sin by believing that Jesus was who he said he was. And following him in response. But how do we do that? How do we follow him? What does that mean? Well, we see here that Jesus fully submitted himself to God's will, to God's plan. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And then he lived that out. Even in the face of death, he walked forward saying, not my will, but your will be done. So what is God's will for you, then, in this day, in this moment? Well, if you have a bulletin right handy, all across it, in great big letters, it says, love God, love others, make disciples. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And go out into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That was God's will for Judas. That was God's will for Peter. That was God's will for Jesus. That is God's will for us as well. Now Judas betrayed Christ. He rebelled against God's will because he loved money more than he loved God. Peter rebelled against God's will because he loved his idea of God's plan more than he loved God. And that caused him then, then to harm his neighbor. In my reading, in preparation for this week, uh, I came across these two sentences that cut real deep. So this is Warren Wearsby writing. 
He says, each of us must, must decide whether we will go through life pretending, like Judas, or fighting, like Peter, or yielding to God's perfect will, like Jesus. Will it be the kiss, the sword, or the cup? So we can go through life pretending, right? You can pretend to be following God's will. You can pretend to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Judas was doing. But in his pretending, he was actually, he was actually living out a love of something else. You are pretending so that you can use the things of God to get what you really want. You can use your relationship with Jesus, in Judas's case, to make 30 extra silver coins. This is, this is what happens when you have abusive pastors. This is what is happening when you have parents who use the fear of God as a way to make their children toe the line. This is what happens when people gossip under the guise of concern. This is what happens when people use something like attendance at church as a way to feel superior to the people around them. This is what happens when people who use something like church attendance as a way to get what they want from their spouses, from their parents. It's lip service. Yes, they're saying all the right things. But when the chips are down... What do they really care about? What did Judas really care about? Even in his pretend love for Jesus, he cared for, he loved, he worshipped, he served money. You might say that you love God. You might say that you love your neighbor, but really, the person that you're loving and serving is yourself. Now, if, if if you've been here long enough to remember back to when we covered the prodigal son back in Luke 15, this is the older brother in that parable, right? He was the one who stayed behind. And if you looked at it from the outside, he was doing all the things that he was supposed to do. But on the inside, remember, he, he was really bitter. He really just wanted, he wanted his father's stuff so that he could live the good life then. And he spent those years of his life serving, not out of love, but so that he could get his hands on his father's money after his father was gone. He was pretending. We go through life either pretending, like Judas, or fighting, like Peter. This is, this is where we say, my will, not your will, be done. I don't care what it is that you want for me, God. I don't care what it is that you have said. This is what I think is best, and so this is what I'm going to do. Now, this can be open rebellion against God. Right? That's, that's one of the ways that this can manifest itself. God says I must be faithful to my marriage covenant, but you know what? I'm just going to go and do whatever it is that I want to do. God says that I must tell the truth, that I must be honest, in the way that I deal with the people around me, but you know what? That's going to cost me some money, and so I'm going to tell this easy lie. That's one of the ways that this fighting can manifest itself. And very often when we're fighting, one of the ways that we can tell that is that we have a tendency to justify ourselves 
to try and explain why what we did is actually right. Of course I did this right. The reason that we feel the need to justify ourselves in these circumstances is we know, deep down, we know what it is that God has told us to do. And we know that we are fighting against him. We know that we are in rebellion against him. And so we're trying to convince maybe others, but we're also trying to convince ourselves. Obviously, I'm in the right here. Now, sometimes it's straightforward, open rebellion against God. Sometimes it's not. And I think that this is what we see here with Peter. Because Peter isn't, isn't actively fighting against Jesus, right? He didn't take out a sword and take a swing at Jesus. But he was confused, very confused, about what God's will was and what Peter's will was. Now, Peter was, in his eyes in that moment, real zealous to do God's will or what he thought God's will was. But the problem was that that wasn't actually God's will. That was what Peter thought God's will was. And this is easy for us to do. And easier, I think, the longer we have spent in um, being in and around the church and spending time in the Bible, it's easy for us to say, well, of course, I, you know, I'm a Christian, so what I want is obviously what God wants. But we need to be real careful about that. Because like Peter, we can become very confused about whose will it is that we are actually doing. Because if it is not the will of the Lord, if we are not seeking to love God, to love others, to make disciples, then we should be real cautious and real curious about whose will we're actually following in that moment. Now, in the parable of the prodigal son, right, this is the younger brother who goes off into that far country. He says, I'm done with you. I'm done with your rules. I'm done with everything that you have for me. And so I'm out. And he goes, and he runs, and he rejects his father. He fights. A few chapters later, we covered the parable of the rich young ruler, right? Where you have this guy who comes before Jesus, and he says, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as, as yourself. And he says, these things I've done from my youth. Yep, check. I've done those things perfectly. Got that under control. What else do I need to do? And so Jesus says, you need to sell all, your ha all you have, give the money to the poor, and come follow me. And so that rich young ruler, at first, he's pretending, right? He's pretending that his will and God's will are perfectly lined up. But at its root, He's got the same issue that Jesus does. He loves his money more than he loves God. And so when Jesus lays bare, he says, nope, not going to do that. And he walks away. He was pretending at first. And then when the pretense was removed, when the truth was revealed, he began to fight. You have both pretending and fighting in one person. So you can pretend you can fight, or you can yield. Not my will, Father. Not what I want. Not what I think is good for me, but your will, Lord. 
And that process of turning from fighting and pretending towards yielding, that's repentance. And we can walk in repentance through faith. Those two things always go together, right? Repentance and faith. Faith and repentance. Not just as a one-time choice, but as an ongoing activity, an ongoing way of living. We do not just repent of our sins one time, but we as a people are continually repenting of our sins. We don't just place our faith in Jesus one time, but we're continually placing our faith in him. Now this is, this is the prodigal son when he comes back to his father, right? He recognized the error of running. He recognized the error of fighting, and he comes back in repentance saying, I was wrong. I was wrong to have run in the other direction. I was wrong to have fought. And he returns home. And how does his father welcome him? His father welcomes him with open arms. And he's so excited. He's so excited because his son has finally returned. This is also the way that Zacchaeus responded, right? You remember uh, back in Luke 19 when we talked about Zacchaeus. He encounters Jesus, and what does he do? He had loved money up to that point. That was what his life was oriented around. He had loved money more than he loved God. But he met Jesus, and all of a sudden that changes. And the love of his life is no longer the coins that are in his purse, but the love of his life is the Lord his God. And he believes. And that faith is accompanied by repentance. And he says, I'll pay everybody back. I'll give away half of what I have and I'll pay everybody back fourfold, I think it is, if I cheated anybody out of anything. He is fully and completely yielded to God. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, the first step to that sort of yielded life, the first step to yielding is to recognize your fighting and to recognize your pretending for what it is. You've got to be able to look at it and say, I am fighting against God here. Or I am pretending to love God and to love my neighbor, but really I'm loving something else first. Now that can be really difficult. That can be incredibly disorienting. Because what you thought was true about yourself, what you told yourself was true about yourself, might actually turn out to have been false. You might have been lying to yourself. For your whole life up until now. The things that you dedicated your life to, they might need to go. You might need to completely rewrite everything about how you live your life. Your job might need to change, or how you do your job might need to change. You might need to move. You might need to toss your understanding of who you are in the trash can and start completely over again. We need to recognize it. But once we've recognized it, we must turn. We must turn in repentance. Stop pretending. Stop fighting. Stop running the opposite way. And instead yield to it. If you've been living by lies, you start telling the truth. If you've been loving and trusting your money the way that Zacchaeus did, give it away. All of it. 
Now we, as the church, as the body of Christ, is supposed to have a significant role to play in this, in the way that this plays out in one another's lives. This is supposed to be a place where you have brothers and sisters who understand what you are going through because they are going through it as well. And they are committed to helping you in that effort. They are committed to loving you while you are still in the middle of sorting out the mess of your heart. So we repent, but we also, with that repentance, must have faith. We must trust in Christ and not in ourselves. Because there's this tendency, there's this temptation to think, well, I know that God must be really mad at me because I've done all of these really bad things. So I'm going to try extra hard to try and make it up to him. I'm going to try and prove to him that I'm worthy of his love. But that's not what faith is telling us to do. It's not telling us to try and make it up. It's not telling us to try and prove that you're worth it. Uh, if you remember the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan, you have Captain Miller. He's sitting on that bridge and he's dying. And he, and he is the last, I think he's the last, of five or six men who have gone looking for this Private Ryan. And he calls Private Ryan over. And do you remember what he says to him? He pulls him in close and he says, earn it. Make your life worth the sacrifice that was made to secure it. And what's going on right there is the exact opposite of what we are called to do. Christ has died so that your sins, your pretending, your fighting, your, your rebellion against him are forgotten and washed away from you. You don't need to earn it. Because it has already been earned by Christ. You don't need to make it up to God. Because Christ has already done that. And so when the Lord God looks at you, if you have faith in Jesus, then he doesn't see the ways that you've messed up. He doesn't see the ways that you have fallen short. But he sees Christ. He sees his perfection. He sees his holiness. And all of those other things are gone washed away and tossed into the sea of forgetfulness, as far as the east is from the west. So we are called, friends, to have faith in, to trust, to believe in him and what he has already done for us. But we don't like to be on the receiving end of grace. We don't like to be given something like that and told you can't earn it, you can't pay it back. We like to have earned it. We like to think of ourselves as having done something to deserve it. Having done, that we need to do something to make it all worthwhile. And we as the church are supposed to be that community that is committed to practicing forgiveness and to extending grace to one another. And also to ourselves. We are supposed, as God has loved us, so we also are to love one another. As God has forgiven us, so we also are to forgive one another. As God has given us grace, so we also are to extend grace to one another. We are supposed to be a community that is committed to one another, not on the basis of, of what we bring to the table 
are not on the basis of, of what we take from the table, how we benefit. But we are supposed to be a community that is committed to one another on the basis of our mutual ongoing choice to walk in repentance and faith alongside one another. But walking in repentance and faith looks like dying. You tell the rich young ruler, sell all your stuff and give the money away. That feels like dying to him. That looks like dying. Because it means that everything that he has based his life around has got to go. It is a rewritten, reordered life. And on, in a lot of ways, it is dying. But Jesus says, that's what it's like to follow me. You must die daily to yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Yield to that dying. Yield to that dying to yourself as he did as he yielded to dying in your place. Share in a death like his, so that you may share in a life like his. You must share in his humility, so that you may one day share in his glory. And we celebrate, we celebrate and we publicly proclaim sharing in his death, dying to ourselves through baptism. Baptism is the way that we publicly proclaim that this is the pattern of our lives from now on. From this point forward, my intention is to walk in repentance and faith. I am yielding myself fully and completely to follow Christ, wherever that leads, whatever that takes. Every single person who is baptized is proclaiming, I am yielding myself, body and soul, to my Lord Jesus Christ. I am following him in a death like his. I am dying to myself. I am dying to my sin. I am dying to this world. And I am raised to a new life, an eternal life, just as he was. Each of us must decide whether we will go through life pretending, like Judas, fighting, like Peter, or yielding to God's perfect will, like Jesus did. So which will it be, friends? Will it be the kiss? Will it be the sword? Or will it be the cup? If you have been pretending, if you have been fighting, if you've been doing both, there is grace. There is forgiveness that has already been purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ crucified. And he calls you to repent of your sin and to place your faith in him. And this is not just a call, friends, for the unbeliever. But this is for all of us, for believer and unbeliever as well. Because even, even after having decided to follow Jesus, we are all still prone to pretending. We are all still prone to fighting. And it isn't even about what's happening on the outside, but it's about what's happening in our hearts. You might be behaving well. You might be ticking off all the little boxes that you have in your head for what it means to follow Jesus. But in your heart, you can still be pretending. You can still be putting on a show. You can still be at war with God, fighting his will. Because even though you're doing on the outside what looks right, in your heart you still want something different. You're still at war with him. Friends, the wages of that pretending, fighting life, what you get 
for that life at war with God, pretending to love him, the wages of that is death. But instead, we must yield. Every single one of us must walk in repentance and faith. And it's through our faith, by grace alone, that we are given the undeserved gift of the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These things are ours by grace through faith. Now, if this is something new for you, something that you are believing today for the very first time, or if there is some specific place where, where you know, where God is telling you right now that this is an area that you are in rebellion, this is an area where you've been pretending, I would encourage you, please talk to somebody about that. Talk to me, talk to Gary, talk to anybody. Because my experience has been that when we bring that out into the light, and we bring it out of the darkness, there is, there is something that happens in that. That weight is now not carried by us alone, but it is carried by our brothers and sisters. Do not walk alone. It's dangerous to go alone. So please, tell somebody. Let's have that conversation. You do not need to walk alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognize that every single one of us needs to choose today. Are we going to pretend to love you? Or are we actually going to love you? Are we going to pretend to love our neighbor? Or, or are we going to pretend and harbor those harbor that belief that they don't deserve what it is that we're giving them. Lord, are we going to fight against you? Are we going to fight against your will? Are you, we going to fight against what it is that you have told us to do? Lord, we recognize that both of those choices lead to death. But Lord, I pray that every single one of us would yield ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that you would give us, that you would call us to walk in repentance and faith, and that you would give us the strength to face up to that pretending and that fighting in our own hearts, and give us the strength and the courage that we need, Lord, to yield ourselves to you. Lord, if, as you examine each one of our hearts, you know the darkness. You know the fighting. You know the pretending. Lord, we might be fooling the people around us. We might even be fooling ourselves. But Lord, there is no fooling you. But we lay bare our hearts to you. We yield ourselves to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace that we need to walk in repentance and faith today from this place and every day from now until Jesus comes again. 
And it's in his name that we pray these things together. Amen. I'm asking you to stand with me as we close this morning as Pastor shared. The altar is always open. The first step is acknowledging that we are in need of the Savior. He comes into our heart, and then it becomes a refining process. As long as you change at once, but as He makes things known to us, as He brings light into those dark places, He reveals Himself in a way that only He can. Assess that salvation together in Christ alone. I ask you to join with me as we sing that chorus. Christ alone, my hope is found. you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace.